Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Good evening. So Fred came home from a late night at the office. After snarfing down his reheated supper, he went into the bathroom to brush his teeth, where he noticed that his wife, Wilma, had squashed the toothpaste tube in the middle for the umpteenth time. He flew into a rage, slamming the drawer closed, flailing his eyes. That woman, he said, she's always squeezing the toothpaste tube in the middle. I've asked her a thousand times to roll it up from the end, but does she listen to me? No, never. I might as well talk to the toothpaste tube itself than expect her to follow my instructions. She's the most stubborn, pig-headed woman I've ever met. How would she like it if I ignored her incessant requests? Now he starts thinking to himself, yeah, that's right, I'll teach her a lesson. She hates it when anyone forgets to replace the cap on the toothpaste tube. So what I'm going to do, when she's asleep tonight, I'm going to sneak into the bathroom and I'm gonna take the toothpaste, remove the cap, and leave it on the vanity. And then tomorrow morning when she wakes up, she'll see what happened, and maybe she'll understand how much it bothers me when she squeezes the toothpaste tube in the middle. And maybe if things really go well, when she tries to put the toothpaste on her toothbrush tomorrow, a little pellet of toothpaste will harden in the neck of the tube and she won't be able to get it out. And maybe if things really go well, she'll look inside the tube and squeeze it real hard and that little pellet will come out and pop her between the eyes. Now, um, is a squashed tube of toothpaste worth all of that emotional energy? Hardly. I mean, what kind of emotional expenditure of energy does a squash tube of toothpaste really require? Oh, she squashed the toothpaste tube in the middle again. Maybe if I keep reminding her, she'll figure it out, but if not, it's no big deal. Or maybe it's time for us to get two different tubes. When we exert inordinate amounts of emotional energy over such trivial disappointments, it's a sure sign, a good indication at least, that we're bitter. What is bitterness? One of the biblical words for bitterness literally describes the, the bitter taste of certain foods and drinks. The verb translated to be bitter means to cut or to prick. Now you may think that bitterness is an internal sort of a self-inflicted wound, and it is, but the Bible says that bitterness will inflict other people too. Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. What is bitterness? Basically, bitterness is the result of not forgiving others. If you're bitter at someone, it means that you truly haven't forgiven that person. To put it another way, bitterness is the result of responding improperly, responding unbiblically to an offense. Now, the scriptures in Hebrews 12, 15 likens bitterness to a root. Actually, it's probably talking about a bitter person here, but the principle is the same. 
It says in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, roots have to be planted. So let me ask you, what do you suppose the seed is called that when planted on the seed, on the soil of your heart, germinates and sprouts into a root of bitterness? Generally speaking, it's a hurt. When someone hurts you, it's as if that person dropped a seed of bitterness on the soil of your heart. And let me pause just to make a, a point here. The offense can be real or imagined. The result is the same. What do you mean, real or imagined? Well, if someone sins against you, then that is a real, biblically bona fide offense. But sometimes people get offended over something that other people do that's not really a sin, right? I mean, if I sin against you, and as a result of that, I hurt your feelings, I have to repent and ask your forgiveness, right? Right? If you get offended over something that I did that didn't offend God, who has to repent? Who has to change his mind? Who has to rethink things? Do I have to? No. Who has to? You do. Why me? Because you allowed yourself to get hurt over something that didn't offend God. So anyway... When someone hurts you, it's as if the person dropped a seed of bitterness on the soil of your heart. At that point, you have two options. You either reach down and take up that seed and flick it away, and you do that by how? By forgiving people, or as an alternative, you can dwell on it over and over and over again in your mind. You look at it from this angle and this angle and you just muse all day long and you constantly churn up the offense. And if you do that, it's just going to be a matter of time. You will be bitter. Veronica's best friend, Betty, had been planning a sleepover for all of the girls in the youth group. All summer long, the, the party was the topic of discussion. All the kids were going to be there. She'd made plans to go to the sleepover for months. She actually helped Betty uh, with the plans for the party, the sleepover. Well, two weeks before the sleepover, guess what? Her father says to her, uh, honey, I know you had that sleepover, but we're having family friends come in for the night, and I don't want you to go. I want you to stay home and visit with our company. Veronica's seed of hurt could have easily transformed into a root of bitterness. Let's track her internal monologue, right? What she says to herself as she responds unbiblically to her father's offense. I can't believe he's doing this to me, she says to herself. I've been planning to go to the sleepover all summer long. Well, at this point, Veronica just presses the seed half an inch to an inch in the ground. He's so selfish. All he thinks about is what he wants. Now she covers that little seed with some soil. He's never willing to let me have fun if he thinks his precious plans might be upset. Now she takes a toothpick and she's sort of aerating the soil around the seed. 
Why did I get stuck with a father like him? Now she's fertilizing her hurt. Yeah, he's such a loser. She's watering the seed and it starts to sprout. I can't wait till I can get out of here. Then nobody will be able to spoil my fun. Now her weed sprouts and its roots are getting deeper, growing thicker and hairier and uglier. Finally, she says, he can't do this to me. I'm going to give him a taste of his own medicine. I'm going to embarrass him so badly when the company comes over that he'll wish he sent me to the sleepover in a limousine. Now she's putting the finishing touches on the greenhouse, which houses her stink weed, and she's charging her friends admission to come and see it. Veronica allowed her hurt feelings to paralyze her, to keep her from taking appropriate options. She had several different options here, but she didn't use them. Instead, she replayed her father's offense over and over again in her mind and consequently became embittered against him. Now, let's talk for a moment about the evidences of bitterness. How do I know? How do, how do I tell if maybe I'm bitter at someone? You know, Solomon says the heart knows its own bitterness, so you probably have a good idea if you think you might. I've been counseling for 35 years, and I've come across a few evidences of bitterness, so I'd like to share them with you. But before I do, I want you to think of that person that you think you might be bitter at. And as we go through this, maybe by the time we're done, you'll have an idea of exactly... Um, what you should do and whether or not you really need to forgive this person. First is difficulty resolving conflicts. Trying to resolve conflicts with someone that you're unwilling to forgive is like trying to build a skyscraper on a place where there's no foundation. The bitterness will doom the project before it gets off the ground. Second, acts of vengeance. Whether it takes the form of a backbiting verbal comment, a spiteful remark to the offender's face, or some kind of physical or visceral altercation, taking one's vengeance, when you start to execute your own vengeance in violation of Romans chapter 12, you can be sure you're struggling with bitterness. How about withdrawing from those who offend you? When we give our offender the cold shoulder or the silent treatment, we're likewise being vindictive. We're saying essentially, look, I've tried to tell you, I don't know how many times and how many different ways, how much it really bothers me when you do that. And you don't get it. You don't have a clue. So the only thing I don't do is to give you a little taste of your own medicine. And maybe in a couple of hours or a couple of days, when I think you get it, I'll start talking to you again. Outbursts of anger. As we saw with Fred, bitterness tempts us to overreact emotionally. When we're bitter, we don't see each new off uh, offense on a clean slate that's easy to be erased, that's easy to be forgiven. Rather, we see that offense on this computer screen, at the top of which it says... Think about Fred. Specific things I've asked Wilma to do over the years, and she steadfastly refused to do. 
And here's entry number 3,227. Biting sarcasm, ironic intonation, snide remark, mean-spirited jousting, caustic comments, scornful speech, and other forms of biting sarcasm are always, not uh, often, not always, but often generated by a resentful heart. Condescending communication, speaking to your offender as though he were a child or an inferior is another possible indication of bitterness. And it's contrary to Philippians 2, 3. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Criticism. A critical, condemnatory, judgmental attitude may also indicate a problem with resentment. Frequently, a retaliatory motive, vengeance, in other words, is in... in uh, is in the heart of a person who makes these kinds of comments, who has a censorious spirit. Then there's suspicion and distrust. When bitterness causes the breakdown in communication, as it almost always does, let's say often does, usually does, the parties become suspicious of each other. Small offenses that typically are dismissed as uh, or with a Oh, he didn't mean anything by it. I've done it a hundred times myself. Or, oh, he's just having a bad day. Are instead interpreted with much more uncharitable motives when we're bitter at people. Intolerance. Similarly, this, uh, bitterness disposes us not to put up with. To use the biblical term found in Ephesians 4, 2 and elsewhere, it causes us not to tolerate, to be tolerant, have loving forbearance towards other people, especially with our offenders, offenders idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic non-sinful habit. Resentment makes mountains out of a molehill. Hypersensitivity. Treating a pinprick as though it were a knife through one's heart may also be an indication of an unforgiving spirit. And if you are a proud person, you're going to be especially prone to fall into this snare, being oversensitive. Say, so how does that work? I'm going to pick on you, okay? You haven't offended any old person. You've offended me. So-and-so may have overlooked that offense, but I'm not so-and-so. And my anger is not so easily propitiated. Do you see the pride behind that kind of an attitude? Impatience. Patience involves being able to keep a biblical perspective on our troubles by not magnifying a tolerable trial so that it appears to our mind as an intolerable one. In other words... A, a, a patient person is going to not make or try not to make snap judgments and rash judgments. Bitterness causes us to lose this biblical perspective and it magnifies forgivable offenses so it appears to our mind as though they're unforgivable. And it also tempts us to resort to unbiblical means of delivering ourselves from the trial rather than waiting on God to work through our peacemaking attempts to resolve the conflict biblically. Disrespect. If the person at whom we're bitter is an authority figure, 
our contempt for that person will make its way out of our mouth, out of our heart, into our mouth, right? Good man, Jesus said, out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're bitter, it's going to come out of your mouth. And it's also going to show up in your face, by the way. You know, whenever you see the word heart in the Bible, always, just about 100% of the time, it's juxtaposed to the outer man. It's the heart versus the mouth, the heart versus the lips, the heart versus the tongue, the heart versus the countenance, the heart versus the hands, the heart versus the feet. It's going to show up. Rebellion against authority. Rebellion hardly ever happens apart from bitterness. First there's an offense, then there's bitterness, then there's stubbornness or insubordination. I mean, think about your children. And then there's full-blown rebellion. Misuse of authority. When bitterness towards a subordinate is in the heart of an authority, it can produce a domineering, dictatorial, or tyrannical attitude that demands needless exacting of obedience. Depression. I love being here in Buckhead. This is so cool. I love my office. I love just being here. It's a beautiful neighborhood. Well, if I were to run around the block over and over again, after a while, little by little, my physical energy would be depleted and I would be physically exhausted. Well, it requires emotional energy to maintain a grudge. And when you're bitter at someone, unforgiving towards someone, day in and day out, day, uh, week in and week out, it's sort of like running around the block emotionally. Sooner or later, your emotional energy is going to be depleted and you will be depressed. Doubts regarding salvation. We just read a version of this, but Jesus, after teaching his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, said, if you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Our unwillingness to forgive an offender in light of all that we have been forgiven by Christ should give us pause to consider whether or not we really are a Christian. Remembering with great specificity the details of an offense. Bitterness eulogizes the particulars. It's actually possible, possible by replaying the events in your mind over and over again to confabulate things. You know, you keep on looking at something from 16 different directions, you're going to increase the likelihood that somewhere in the process you're going to replace facts with fiction. But regardless of how you've been hurt, as a Christian who's committed to pleasing God, you really have no choice but to forgive your offenders of any sins they've committed against you, at least to forgive them in your heart. Now, we're going to take a look next at the biblical basis for forgiveness. And most of the principles that follow are based on this passage, Luke 17, 3 through 10. Uh, I'll bring some other passages in as we go through, but I'd like us to stand together as we read this passage. Beginning in verse 3. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves 
exclamation point. Jesus Christ is about to hit you with some of the hardest material you've ever been hit with. And if you're not careful, it's going to sneak up sideways and knock you off the pew. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's not so bad. And if he repents, forgive him. Okay. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and seven times turns to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> now, that's not really what it says, but really what it says is, they said, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey. So guys, it's not more faith you need, it's more something else. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once, recline at the table? I mean, think about that. He's been in the field all day long. It's a hot August day. He's been out there for, you know, 12 hours in the, in the heat of the day. And his boss says to him, oh, poor guy, come in, sit on the chair, put up your feet on my ottoman, have some lemonade. This is Atlanta. Have some sweet tea. Have some Coke. Is that what he says? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded him? I don't think so. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done that which was our duty to do. You may be seated. Principle number one, forgiveness is to be granted only if a sin has been committed against you. Jesus says, if your brother sins, right? He didn't say, if he doesn't give you what you want, if he lets you down, if he hurts your feelings, if he profoundly disappoints you or bursts your bubble somehow. He may do any and all of those things in the process of sinning against you, but he's not in need of your forgiveness unless he really sins against you. Now, if what your brother done, has done to upset you is not a sin, sure, it's fine for you maybe to go talk to him about it. But again, as I said before, not until you change your mind. You're, it may bug you what your wife did, what your husbands did, what your parents did, but if it's not a sin and you want to talk to them about it, they're not really in need of your forgiveness, right? Number two, sometimes the offended party must initiate forgiveness. If you cannot overlook the transgression or cover it in love, what do I mean by that? Overlook the transgression, Proverbs 19.11. It is a glory of man to overlook a transgression or cover it in love. 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. Right? So, I mean, if you confronted everybody every time they sinned against you, right, and didn't overlook it or cover some things, some days you wouldn't have enough time to write the list of all the people you have to go back and talk to. But it's those things that you can't cover up, those things you cannot overlook that Jesus says you've got to go deal with. You've got to take 
the initiative. Sometimes we must go to our sinning brother and tell him about his sin with the intention of being able to grant him forgiveness. If he sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That's the intent. You go, you talk to him, he acknowledges, he says, mia culpa, will you forgive me? And you verbally grant him forgiveness. You say, but he sinned against me. Why does his sin obligate me to go to him? Didn't Jesus say somewhere that if he brings his gift to the altar and there he remembers that he's done something against me, he's supposed to come to me? Uh-huh, he does. In Matthew 5.23. That's exactly what he said. But we're not in Matthew 5.23. We're in Luke 17.3. I think it's ingenious, you know, the way the Lord set this up. The person who knows about the offense is the one who goes. You know, he wants us to be tripping over each other trying to kiss and make up his Christians. He doesn't want loose ends flopping in the breeze. The one who knows is the one who goes. Let's say that together. The one who knows is the one who goes. Let's say it again. The one who knows is the one who goes. Perhaps your offender doesn't know that he's offended you, or maybe he doesn't want to come talk to you. That's probably why Jesus set it up this way. I heard a story about this church um, years ago who, um, who, that was really, really split. Just one aisle down the middle, half the people on this side, the other half on the other side, and they hardly spoke to each other. Why? Because 15 years ago, there was a conflict between two men in the church, and nobody dealt with it. Neither one of the men went and followed this passage. And so the new pastor comes in, or maybe he was an intern pastor, and he finds out about this, and he sits them both down. And he begins to, he becomes a true yoke fellow, right? Like um, Philippians 4 talks about. He's trying to get them to kiss and make up, trying to figure out what's going on here. And at the end of the day, he found out that there really wasn't no, there really wasn't an offense at all. First guy said, well, when you said such and such and such and such, Wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't say such and such and such and such. I said such and such and thus and so. You said such and such and thus and so? Yeah, I never would have said. 15 years, people were having serious animosity with each other because nobody sat down and followed this passage and nobody did what the Bible said and tried to be a peacemaker and get these two brothers to deal with their problem. Number three, forgiveness is costly. When you forgive some, someone, it costs you something tremendously expensive. It costs you the price of the offense that you forgive. I had a, I had a, um, a college professor, a graduate school professor, and he would talk about when he would have to exercise forgiveness in, ma in marriage. He would say, well, when my wife does something that really, really hurts me, I basically have to take her offense, put it in a pretty box, put a cover on it, wrap it up in paper, put a bow on top, and hand it back to her. It costs you something to forgive. The other person might not be able to quickly make restitution, may not be able to make restitution at all. But more importantly, what it costs you to forgive someone is minutia compared to what it costs the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Now, I know 
Some of you have really been hurt, and I'm not trying to minimize the horrible things that some of you have gone through, but in comparison, the offense that you have to forgive is very small compared to the offenses that God has forgiven you. This is why unforgiveness is such a hideous crime in the eyes of him who judges the whole earth. In the parable of the unforgiving servant that we just read, Jesus referred to the protagonist as wicked, who, after being forgiven an incalculable debt, wouldn't forgive his fellow slave. You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you asked me, shouldn't you have gone and forgiven your brother and had mercy on him, your fellow slave, just as I had taken compassion, as I had mercy on you? In light of how much you've been forgiven by God, for you not to forgive those who offend you is wickedness. It doesn't matter much how the offense you're struggling to forgive hurts you. By comparison to your offenses against God and the hurt that you put his son through, the offense, the hurt that you have to forgive is relatively small. And it's even more wicked for you who are a Christian and who have been forgiven and who now have the Holy Spirit who enables you to do what the Bible says you must do in this case than it is for someone who is not a believer. Never forget, the debt that you owe God for your sins is humanly incalculable and absolutely unpayable. You will never be able to repay the gazillions of dollars of sin you owe God in the bank account of heaven. Impossible for you to pay it back. But it's a debt that has been paid for by the death of Christ on the cross. And if you put your trust in him and are trusting in his forgiveness, his dying for your sin as a substitute for your punishment, then your sin is wiped out. And by the way, when you put your faith in Christ, not only does he take the blame and the punishment for your sin, guess what? He deposits into your bank account a gazillion dollars worth of righteousness that you need to get to heaven. In order to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. You will never be perfect. And so it's double imputation. He takes the blame and the penalty for our sin. We get credited for his righteousness, and that fits us to go to heaven. And we do that by believing, not that Jesus is the Son of God, not just that he's the Son of God, not just that he died for the sins of the world, but do you believe that when he died, he died for you? Have you, have you accepted that by faith? If so, you've been given the Holy Spirit. If so, you have supernatural power to forgive people. If not, it's going to be very difficult for you. Number four. Actually, one more point under number three. Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is the judge who sent his son to die in your place so that he could slam the gavel on his bench and say, the penalty has been paid. Your debt has been forgiven. You are free to go. What ingratitude for us to not forgive others there 
offenses. Number four, forgiveness is fundamentally a promise. In his insightful book, From Forgiven to Forgiven, Jay Adams explains, when God forgives, he goes on record. He says so. He declares, I will not remember your sins. Isn't that wonderful? When he forgives, God lets us know that he will no longer hold our sins against you. Now remember, the context here is not so much forgiving someone in your heart. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it's about verbally granting someone forgiveness. If forgiveness were merely an emotional experience, we would not know that we were forgiven. But praise God, we do, because forgiveness is a a process at the end of which God declares that the matter of sin has been dealt with once for all. Now, what is this declaration? What does he do when he goes on record saying that our sins are forgiven? He makes a promise. Forgiveness is a promise. I promise I will not hold your sins against you any longer. I will not remember your sins against you. What, so God have amnesia? No, he's omniscient. He knows about the sins that I'm going to commit tomorrow, and they're forgiven in Christ. It doesn't mean that he doesn't remember them. It means he doesn't hold them against us. That's the idea. When you forgive someone, when you verbally forgive someone, when you say, I forgive you, you're promising to no longer hold your offender's trespasses against him. And you're also promising to impute your forgiveness to that person, much like Christ, as I mentioned a moment ago, imputed his righteousness to you. The dictionary defines the verb impute to attribute or credit. When you promise not to impute your your offender's trespasses against him, you're promising not to charge him for what he's done. This means you're not going to allow yourself to dwell on the offense. You're not going to look at it six ways to Sunday. You'll refuse to cultivate those hurts of, uh, the seeds of hurt, and will rather immediately reach down and pluck them off the soil of your heart. And you will, if you've forgiven some, relinquish any rights you think you have, which you really don't, any rights to get even. When you promise to impute your forgiveness, you credit your offender's account with forgiveness. You make every effort to think well of him, to pray for him, to speak well of him, if possible. And this promise, to, to a certain extent, can be made in the form of, a form of a verbal commitment, even if the person doesn't acknowledge his sin. I mean, what do you do with that? Okay, the passage we're looking at says if you go and you talk to him, he says, I'm sorry, and you, you grant him forgiveness. Well, in Mark 11:25, 25, it talks about forgiving someone in your heart, as it were. When you stand praying, forgive. So it's often, I dare say, usually not wise to go around verbally granting people their forgiveness, your forgiveness, who who don't understand what they've done wrong and haven't repented. But if you don't deal with the bitterness in your heart, if you don't make a promise to yourself somehow that you're not going to dwell on that thing six ways to Sunday, you're going to get bitter. In such cases... If he does verbally acknowledge his sin, you're making two additional promises. You're, not, you're promising, I'm not going to dwell on it myself. I'm not going to tell other people about it. If other people know or, or have a need to know, I'm going to put pressure on you to do it before I go. And I'm not going to bring it up to you again, at least not in a pejorative way. Number five. 
Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. If someone sins against you, it's incumbent upon you as a Christian to forgive that person as you have been forgiven by God. However, it's incumbent upon that person, and this is very important, this is one of the reasons people don't forgive, because they don't understand this. It's incumbent upon that person to earn back the trust that he lost as a result of sin, of his sin, right? Forgiveness should be immediate. Basically, you have to hand him forgiveness on a silver platter once he acknowledges that he's done wrong. Trust you don't hand him on a silver platter. Trust, the trust that he lost is something that's incumbent upon him to earn back. Forgiveness can be quick, like immediate. Trust sometimes take, takes time. Now, there is a warning. To withhold trust after the other person has earned it back, or at least incrementally earned it back. He, uh, he, he little by little starts, you know, he lost trust by lying, okay? Little by little, he starts telling the truth. Little by little, you incrementally give him that trust back. Not all at once, but little by little. But if you don't, if you don't incrementally give him the trust that he's earned, you're being unloving. Because 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things, love believes the best. Love puts the best interpretation on what other people do. And in absence of evidence to the contrary, if the person is that he's not really repentant, if he's earning the trust back, you ought to give him a fighting chance to earn the trust back that he lost. And if you don't give him a fighting chance, you're not being loving. It may not be the same thing as not forgiving him, but it still is a sin. And whether or not you're able to quickly trust your offender, you must always trust God to work through him to protect you from danger. Number six. Forgiveness does not focus on secondary causes, but on the sovereignty of God. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He had to learn to trust God. You know, we sometimes think that when Joseph was being sold off to slavery, he had this really, really good attitude. You know, here he is in his cage on a camel, and his brothers are, you know, saying good riddance to him. And he sticks his hand out through the cage, and he waves, and he says, don't worry, guys, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You'll see. And he breaks out into a chorus of Romans 8, 28 and 29. That's not the way it happens. Listen. Listen to Genesis 42, 21. This is the second time he appears before his brothers. Uh, he hasn't disclosed himself, but this is what brought him to tears. The brothers said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. In the final analysis, God could have prevented the offenses that have tempted us to bitterness, but he didn't. Forgiveness focuses not on the offender's sin, but on how God in his wisdom and goodness, may be using the offense for his glory. And we should assume that God is far more concerned with our response to the offense than the offense itself. When I was in college, we, uh, the dorm was a big house, and you know, there was probably about 25 of us in the dorm. And one day, one of my dorm mates comes in, and he, he said... Um, he said, I'm going to Burger King. Do you want a Whopper? And I said, sure. You know, back then, Whoppers were like two bucks, something like that. So I took out a $5 bill, and I gave it to him. And he goes back, and um, he goes out, he gets the hamburger, comes back, and he puts the bag on my desk, but doesn't give me any change. 
now I'm going to call him Charlie. Charlie was a very conscientious guy, and, and he wasn't the kind of person that would normally make mistakes like that. So I wondered if there was something going on. I said, hey, Charlie, you seem down today. Is something going on? And he opened up, and he, he shared with me a struggle he was uh, having, and I, I tried to encourage him and counsel him. And, um, you know, I, I used his offense of not giving me my $3 change as an indication to, uh, that he might need my help somewhere. You know, forgiveness, somebody said, is using the offenses of others as a means of expressing Christ's love to them. And so I was able to minister to him. Did you get your $3 back? Nope. I'm just thankful I didn't hand him a 20. <laughs> Number seven. Forgiveness involves an act of the will, not an act of the emotions. If your offender repents, you must forgive him quickly. Now, that's not, you know, seven times in one day. It's like, you got to be kidding, right? The, the disciples said. But increase our faith. But the idea here is that you've got to be willing to forgive me, forgive the other person. Now, sure, you know, after the third or fourth time somebody bops you in the nose, you're going to question his sincerity, right? Now, that's not to say you can't say, brother, yes, I'm willing to forgive you, but this is the third time today you've bopped me in the nose. Can we please talk about this, okay? But the idea is there's got to be a willingness in your heart to forgive someone. And if he's a brother and he keeps on doing it, then there are other scriptures that apply in terms of you're trying to restore a brother who has fallen. Jesus doesn't give you much time to get your feelings in line before you forgive. You are to do it as an act of the will in obedience to God. When I've had to forgive people, especially in my heart, it looks like this sometimes. Lord, you saw what brother so-and-so did to me, and you know I really want to give him a dose of his own medicine. I really want to do something vindictive. But I know that's wrong. So as an act of my will, as an obedience to you, I'm going to impute my forgiveness to him, at least in my heart, just like you've imputed your forgiveness to me. Your feelings will follow. And if you wait, until your feelings change before you forgive, you may never obey the Lord's command. In the verses that follow 5 through 8, the disciples had a hard time with Christ's subject, teaching on the subject. Their response to them was an incredulous increase our faith. They thought they needed more faith in order to do what they needed. But rather, what they really needed was more faithfulness. The slave in the story was not being asked to do something he was incapable of doing despite how exhausted he may have felt after returning to his master's house from a long day's work. Preparing the evening meal was something he was expected to do. It was non-optional. Neither was it something for which he was going to receive time and a half for working overtime. He couldn't even expect to receive a special commendation. It was his job. Forgiveness, brothers and sisters, is your job. Forgiveness is a part of your job description. When the Lord signed you up for this gig, the marching orders were you have to forgive other people. It's non-optional. And like, like any job, some responsibilities are easier and more enjoyable than others. Some you feel like doing, others you do whether you feel like it or not. And then once you do it, your feelings change, right? 
But if I do that, I'll feel like such a hypocrite. I mean, if, if I forgive him and I just don't feel like doing it, I, I, I just feel like I'm being hypocritical. Well, you'll feel that way if you don't change the way you think about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not feeling one thing and doing something else. Hypocrisy is professing one thing and doing something else. The first thing I did this morning, I did against my feelings, and you probably did too. I got out of bed. Am I a hypocrite because I went against my feelings and I did what God wanted me to do? I got out of bed? No. If I'd stand up here and say, oh, I just love getting out of bed this morning. Okay, then you call me a hypocrite. But going against your feelings is a matter of responsibility, not a matter of hypocrisy. After granting forgiveness, remind yourself, again, we're talking about verbal forgiveness here, remind yourself that you made a promise to your offender. Don't let that seed of hurt develop into a root of bitterness by dwelling on it. Pray for your offender. Put your mind to work into a, or onto a Philippians 4, 8 thought pattern. Do you ever think about that with people? You know, we think about Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are true in us and just and pure. What about people? I mean, think about running through that list with people in mind, especially the people who hurt you. I mean, Jesus said, love your neighbor, right? And he said, love your enemy. So, I mean, this is what he calls us to do. Rather than having hurtful mental images from the past, reviewing them over and over again, or laying vindictive plans for the future, you know, seeing your offender's face on a dartboard or on a golf ball you'd like to send 100 yards down the, 300 yards down the fairway, or on a baseball you'd like to pulverize with your Louisville slugger, see his face with the words, I've forgiven you, written across the top of his forehead. You may be surprised how much better you feel if you think that way, as well as how quickly you'll forget once you forgive. I want to close with this. Another reason why people struggle to forgive is I can't forgive until I forget. God doesn't forget in that sense. He's omniscient, Right? Forgetting is the result of forgiving. It's not the means of forgiving. It's the final step in the process, if it's a step at all. It's not even necessary in many cases. It's not the first one. Let's pray. Okay, Lord, this is a really, really tough passage. Um, and Lord, um, there are a lot of questions, practical applications I, I was not able to go into tonight. And so I pray that... Um, People will <clears throat> send us the questions that we'd be able to answer more specifically when we do the broadcast. But Father, we know that if we are Christians, if we put our trust in Christ, we have the love of Christ shed abroad in our life, in our hearts. We know what it's like to be forgiven. And, and Lord, we have the Holy Spirit who enables us to do that which is humanly impossible. You said in the book of James, if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God gives to all men liberally and abradeth not and it shall be given him. You promise to give us the wisdom to do even that which is humanly impossible. In fact, James said the doer of the word will be blessed in the process of doing. And then in Philippians 4, you said that once we get the wisdom, once we step out in faith and do the things that your word says for us to do, 
you'll give us the desire and in time, uh, the ability and in time, even the desire to do what is humanly impossible. Indeed, you said it is God, the Holy Spirit, who works in us to make us willing and to make us able to do his good pleasure. Thank you for these truths. Um, Lord, I, I pray for everyone here who may be struggling. Lord, that if there's a need to come in and see me for counseling, if there's a need to have more clarification, Lord, that you would give them the grace and the wisdom to ask for help. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that what we said tonight will, will really answer a lot of questions and will assure some people that they really don't struggle with bitterness and will help other people to realize that there's more work that has to be done by the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Again, Father, we want to thank you for forgiving those of us who've put our faith in Christ an absolutely incalculable, absolutely unpayable debt to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.